0: Okay, so I want to learn today the with you the first two trakim, the first two chapters of Sefer Hiob. Um Sefer Yio is classic mishavah <coughs> of learning material because it is kind of the locus classicus for discussions of theodicy, right? Right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? Sadik Also, good things to bad people. though that. Trouble does last, I think. Um, and before we start, before we go into the sources, I want to actually start with kind of like two paradigms for thinking about theodicy. One, uh, I think, is going to be familiar to you. To you. It is a kind of philosophical paradigm. Right? This is probably something you've seen on a blackboard at least once. right? involves the first statement is, God is all-powerful. The second statement is, God is all-good. Right, and the third statement is there is evil in the world. Right, one, two, three. Right, and then whoever's in the front of the room will like make a hand motion like this and point out doesn't all add up. There's something broken about this. Right? in other words, if God is all powerful and God is all good, how can there actually be good evil in the world? Right, how is that possible? It seems like a contradiction. Right, and then various basically your paths are to deny one of those three statements. Right? So you could deny that God is all-powerful. I think the kind of classic name is that's called the Manichaean heresy. This is like a Christian name because they, they're better at systematic theology than we are. Right? So that would be to deny that God is all-powerful. It turns out there are actually two powers in the world. God's not the only one. Good. The other thing you could do is you could deny that God is all-good. Right. People less frequently take that path, but that would be basically the Gnostic heresy. Right, the idea that the God that is really in control things is a bad God, um, very disturbing. Or the third thing you can do is the more kind of traditional alternative, the Augustinian answer is: turns out there's no evil, right? So that's the third option. Okay, so that I imagine is something that is familiar to you in one form or another, and I would say it's also probably unsatisfying to most of the people in this room. Certainly, it's unsatisfying to me. That's why. It's I'm teaching this year. Um, I want to suggest a second possibility for thinking about theodicy, and I'm just going to suggest it by way of a story, and then we're going to open up the um, Book of Theob and sort of talk about how these two versions of theodicy play out in the Book of Theob, or how the Book of Eov might be a model for thinking about this. So the story is uh, happened about um, two years ago, uh, three years ago, rather. It was um, during Hanukkah. I was in Budapest. Um, I had spent the week in Budapest learning about um, the history of the Budapest Jewish community, the Shoah, which decimated Hungarian Jewry in six weeks. Um, And I was spending Shabbos in in this amazing synagogue in Budapest. Um, It's like this kind of like opera hall, right? Literally, it's, it's quite literally modeled on an opera hall, right? Full of like kind of crimson and gold. Right, it could fit 500 people. It's amazing, multiple pulpits, all the, the, the works. Um, and the minyan meets in the rabbi's study because the boiler broke in the big shul, um, and they don't have the money to repair it. Right, so instead of this enormous shul that you got to see for like one moment, right? Instead, you go into this like little broken down library, and there's about 15 people there, maybe 20 people who are davening in this like little ramshackle room, um, and after davening there's lunch, the rabbi invites me to stay for lunch, and he explains that he actually has lunch every week at shul, because the people in the shul don't make enough money to be able to buy themselves like a nice cup of Shabbos lunch, right? So these people are so desperately poor that this is what he does. He makes shul, he makes, sh- he makes Shabbos in the shul every week. Um, And further, he said, not only is that uh, that's a problem, the other problem is most of these people are people who are, have sort of returned to their Judaism in adulthood. Many Hungarian Jews grow up not even knowing they're Jewish, right? And they figure it out as adults. So he says, not so clear that they know how to make shavats, right? That this is something that they've ever done before. Um, So I think it's sort of this emotional moment, right? You're, like, sitting trying to, you know, figure out, like, what, what, you know, how to respond to this, like, feeling of incredible deprivation, is not doing so well in general at the moment, right, the Jews of Hungary are not doing so well, right, and there's a feeling that you can really feel this sense of korban and destruction that has actually left this mark, mark on this community. And after lunch, the particular moment that I want to sort of draw our attention to is that they started singing, and they started their singing their favorite song, which is the uh, tune that I'm sure many of you are familiar to, Vahisha Amda Labutania, Right, the, you know. Right, and there's this moment when you get to, you know, that not just one but many adversaries have risen up to destroy us. Right, right and the, and the Holy Blessed One saved us from their hands. Um, And I remember as I was saying, as people were singing this, in this beautiful tune, looking across at the rabbi, right, because it's kind of this moment of like total irony, right, that is to say people are singing this song in this place, right, where it didn't happen, right, someone is a madaleno kalatenu and it happened, right, like it was there, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, lo yisi lef right, it's a very shocking moment, and the rabbi, I don't know, looked and shrugged at me. Um, and it was an interesting moment because there's a simultaneous feeling, I think, of on the one hand, as I said, there's a very sharp feeling of this is a moment in which that promise did not seem to be fulfilled, right? This is a moment of kind of despair and heartbreak and loss. And on the other hand, there was also this moment of that's actually the fulfillment of that song, right? That's actually what that song is about. This song, That song is about this kind of like experience of this people in the room were nonetheless persevering, right? So what, what I find interesting in that moment is that the difference between these two different modes of thought, right? In the first philosophical mode of thought, remember, we had various statements, and the statements are kind of in contradiction. And what do you do? You cut. You have to take one of the statements out, right? That's the way philosophy works. If you have a contradiction, so you have to cut one of the things out. Whereas one of the ways that poetry, I want to suggest, works Right, is that poetry is built on contradictions poetry is built on paradoxes the very same thing that makes it fail as philosophy right? the kind of contradiction between axiom A and axiom B is the success of the poetic moment Right, the fact that it doesn't work the fact that there is this contradiction actually makes that a far more meaningful experience of living people sing than the experience at your Pesach Seder, you know, in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. So all that is by way of kind of pretextual prelude. So how does this relate to the book of Eov? So the book of Eov is 42 Prakim long, I think, um, and it is famously difficult, um, but one of the difficulties is actually that there seem to be two books of Eov. <laughs> Right. That is to say, there are two components of the Book of Eov, and it's not clear how they fit together. Right. So on the one hand, we have a prose narrative. That's the first two trachim, and some portion of the last parak is part of the prose narrative as well. Um, and on the other hand, then we have the bulk of the poem, which is nearly incomprehensible poetry. Right? Poetry that is very difficult. Some of the most, m- most difficult poetry in the Tanakh. Um, and one of the things that people have classically recognized That people figured out pretty early about it Is that it's not just that you have a genre difference of poetry and prose You also seem to have a theological difference between the two parts right? Uh, so let's say a character- characterological difference Job, in the prose narrative Is a pious individual Who worships God Who refuses to curse God Who refuses to speak up against God Right. And Job in the poetry portion of Sefer Eov is quite the opposite. Job in the poetry portion of Eev is quite forward in pleading his case against God, in complaining against God, right? In in very sharply, even at moments, critiquing God. Right. So it seems like there's a quite a bit of a tension. Um, so I'd like to maybe let's have someone read the first source. The first source kind of plays out the kind of theological problem here. Um, this is we're still in we're still on the first page. Is an uh, article by a very good a- article by Alan Middleman, the Job of Judaism and the Job of Kant. Maybe Carrie, would you read um, just that those first two paragraphs there sure. loudly? Yes, loudly.
1: Well, the Book of Job presents its chief protagonist in two discrepant ways: Job, the patient, and Job, the rebel. Ancient Jewish interpretations of Job praise Job the patient and condemn, or at least do not praise, Job the rebel. Modern Jewish interpretations, by contrast, praise Job the rebel and scamp the patient, highest Job of the frame story. Job the rebel becomes a model of sincerity or authenticity, a chief value of modernity. Job, the patient and pious sufferer so celebrated by antiquity is at best an ambivalent figure.
0: Continue? Yeah, do the second paragraph, why not?
1: The traditional commentators continue to affirm a divine governance of the world that can be disclosed by reason. All of them hold to a purposive, teleological universe as opposed to a modern universe of mechanical, material causation from which final causality has been banished. (laughs) All of them counsel acceptance of misfortune as the appropriate response to the divine plan. None of them see evil as a fatal threat to an ordered universe and a coherent theism. None despair
0: of theodicy. Great. So what's really stark and beautiful about this Middleman article is that he essentially takes these two strands of the book of Job, Job the patient sufferer versus Job the quasi-blasphemer, right? And he says one of these is antiquity, right? Chazal, the uh, classic medieval theologian, Sajigon, right? To a certain extent, the Rambam, Right, the classics, that's one side, and then the other side is the moderns, Right, the moderns starting with Kant which is who the <laughs> middleman wrote his dissertation on, so it's not surprising that he becomes the pioneer figure um, right? starting with Kant we have a desire for authenticity honesty in confronting the radical evil in the experience in the world, right? in terms of the, terms of the <laughs> philosophy, starting with Kant you could even say the good god kind of drops out, that's the piece that you drop off there Right, um, so that's, that's the kind of thing we're working against that's, what, that's our kind of background here um, now there's a basic problem with this which we're going to return to at the end which is that actually the Midrashim on Eov that are found in the Bavli and in Eicha Raba, right? that is to say that both the Palestinian collection of Midrashim surrounding Echa as well as the Babylonian Talmud don't fit either of these paradigms <laughs> Right? That's a pretty basic problem. That is to say, the, there are a mess of contradictions, <laughs> tensions, readings back and forth, readings of intra- individual Psukim, but they don't fit either the paradigm of the systematic philosophy of Kant or the systematic philosophy of Sajigon, Right, Sajigon who goes so far as to say, the friends are right, who counsel Eov and say you sinned. You know, right, so that's Sajagon, then Kant's the kind of modern authenticity But the Midrash doesn't quite go either way And in the end, we'll kind of circle back and I'll suggest a way of actually reading the Midrash right? Alan Middleman is, is, sort of has to say, well, the Midrash kind of waffles Some of the Amoraim were like Kant, some of them were like Sajagon right? But it's, a, it's messy, right? And the other problem is there's a literary problem, and that's part two um, Let's see, who else can I pick on to read? Maya could you read um maybe just the central paragraph of uh this is a piece from The Art of Biblical Poetry by Mauriu Professori, my my teacher Robert Robert Author. The power of Joseph's unflinching argument in the biblical book that bears his name has rarely fails to remove the
1: But the structure of the book has been a perennial puzzle. It begins as the author problem with a seemingly naive
0: tale. So but by the way, just so you know, naive when used by a literary critic. Right? That's the equivalent of like terrible disaster. <laughs> naive doesn't mean like a nice, you know, that naive means C minus. Okay, keep going. <laughs> the prose of the frame story switches into, into
1: altogether remarkable poetry. The prose frame story then puts shut by referring to Joe's poem, girl, prestige, at the same time, effectively providing another special. This ending has troubled many readers over the. Century.
0: Okay, so, so, first of all, it's important to note this is a piece of masterful literary criticism, but it also has a theological background, right? That is to say, where is Robert Alter on the ancient-modern divide? He's a, someone shouted out, he's a modern, right? The moderns don't like the prose, the ancients don't like the poetry, something like that, right? And he, all of his language, seemingly naïve, Right, versus the poetry, which is altogether remarkable. Right? And then elsewhere in pieces that Maya didn't read, right, the, the frame tale is an old folk tale incorporated by the poet. Right? It's kind of like whenever this is another piece, right? If literary critics use naive as a negative term, philologists tend to use arcane, that's a bad term. If it's old, there's something probably wrong with it, you know. <laughs> Should have updated it. Um, whereas Robert Alter senses also that the poetry is really where it's at. And here there's a kind of implicit argument about how literary structure and theology fit together. Right, The argument is that the poetry is baffling, difficult, and complex. And so too, the world is baffling, difficult, you know, difficult and complex. Right, And what Robert Alter loves about the poetry is it comes closest to being T.S. Eliot.
2: Right. It comes
0: closest to being poetry that fits with a sensibility that sees the world as a complicated, broken place of sublime heights, great difficulties, confusions, right? It's not the ordered poetry of, you know, Ashreyoshre Vetaha Odia Lucha Right? Like it's not, you know. Okay. So what do I want to do now that we've we've really we've really introduced the first two prakim? I wanna suggest that I don't think that, on a literary level, the prose is so naïve. The first two, Prakima Viov, right, the easy part, I don't think is so simple, I think it's pretty hard, actually. And what, I, and that's the kind of piece I want to do that is a little on, that is dissenting from, with all due respect, my teacher, Robert Alter. And then I want to suggest, by way of that, that there is, in the prose, something richer than Sajjagaon's theology, right? That there is something richer than a kind of harmonistic view of the world in which everything is, a, is, a, is right with the world, everything is okay, there's really no evil, and you just have to be patient and submit. Right? So that's how the literary piece and the theological piece are linked. To the extent that the, po- the prose is actually more like the poetry than we give it credit for, to the extent that the prose is a rich document, <laughs> I think it also suggests that what we think of as the kind of naive old fashioned conservative part of the book of Eo is actually has surprises in it. Okay. Questions? I haven't said anything yet, so.
1: <laughs>
0: Alright. So let's say, let's break this down this way. Let's start with Eo of Parakala. Do I have maybe a volunteer to read? Wendy, would you like to read just in you can either read anyone can read in either in Hebrew or in the Dialect that is this translation to nineteen seventeen JPS. <laughs> <laughs> so, whichever you be like, All right. but loudly. All
1: right. Keep going again through the end of the paragraph. Mm-kay.
0: Good. Now we have a very nice chunk. Wendy was pausing me because she was incredulous that I would actually have us work through a full six or seven sutim, <laughs> right? It's kind of an unheard of amount, but we have, we have to speed through because we don't have so much time. So basic question, what, what picture do we get from, of Eov? Shout it out quickly because we don't have time for... A one
2: percenter.
0: Oh, a, a, a one percenter. <laughs> Good. He's rich. Right? He's loaded, and not only is he loaded, you'll note that the numbers are very important, right? When at the, when at the end it says that Mispar <laughs> is a key word in this passage because he's got seven sons, three daughters, right? What is it? 7,000 son seven and three again but this time multiplied by a thousand and then we have Semet Bakar. we have another 500 and 500 so we have nice beautiful round numbers right not just but not just is he a one percenter he's actually maybe a. Point one percenter one in a thousand um, good what about his character careful. he's careful very good say a little more
1: so nervous that his children might have even done something wrong that he doesn't know about, that he finds the precise number of offerings that would be to bring, and he brings those
0: offerings. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So there's a sense that Eov is someone who cares, who sweats the details, right? is punctilious, right? Yirei Elohim, in the kind of very strong sense of this is someone who actually lives in fear, right? He lives in fear of events that he couldn't possibly observe right if these people are cursing God in their hearts if his sons and daughters are cursing God in his hearts he doesn't know it but nonetheless he like he won't enter himself into a soffit right he's l'choladeo okay good other thoughts
2: I don't want to say a bad father but he's <laughs> disconnected from his children in the sense of there's no right. conversation between him and his family he just sort of his sons do their thing and then he goes in secrecy and offers sacrifices right? yeah There's
0: good no this particular
2: is indication of familial
0: good so this is a classic observation that people will make about EO when trying to get God off the hook which is that he is insufficiently loving towards his family but but, but I'll, I'll play out the fullness of what might you know right which is you'll say something like, you know, uh, he treats his family members in the same way that he treats the animals, right? And that's why they're listed together. So I think people will say this, and that there's a, there are midrashim like this. I don't think it's, I don't think that, you know, Ad Kidekas is correct. Like that seems to me over far and there's a certain apologetic tinge to that. But there certainly is this sense that he's someone actually, maybe, maybe another way of saying it is he's a person who dwells in the world of rules, Right, he's more comfortable maybe with numbers than he is with relationships. Right, or another way of saying it is he's just someone who cares about numbers a lot or cares about order. Right, there's a sense of the round of days, hikifu. And you'll notice how that pasuk works in this beautiful way. when the days of the feast came around, and the pasuk ends kacha yaaseiyov yamim. Right, nice little round circle of a pasuk there. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. That's the, that's the real important thing that this is doing. It's setting up blasphemy, right? We already have blasphemy from the first moment and the fear of blasphemy, right? And it's important to note also, because well, it'll become important later, right? Just to notice that, right, verb. Verhu Elohim, right? Verhu, right, Verhu right? Elohim, right? 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 To curse God, and that word is... Uh, you could say it in other words you could call it a euphemism, right? Because it is obviously livarech, or another word for it would be a contronym. Has anyone ever heard the term contronym? The word for the day. A contronym is a word that means a thing and means its opposite, right? Livarech means both to bless and to curse. Okay, lovely. And there also is that little hint in the Yaasta. So, yeah, so the future verb can be used, right, as a kind of modal to say this is what he would always do. But here it may have an additional sense, which it is prospectively looking forward into the future, right? And it's looking forward and anticipating the rest of the book. It may be anticipating the offerings that Eog will bring at the end in chapter 42, which are kind of a key part of the plot. Or it may be looking forward to later in the first paragraph But definitely we have foreshadowing here. Okay, now we need... Um, the next paragraph, who'd like to read the next paragraph? Here.
2: great. We <laughs> Beautiful.
0: Okay. What's the impression that we get of the Supernal Realms? of what's going on and above, right? We had this image of this beautifully ordered, wonderful household that Eov does. Maybe there's quite not quite enough communication between the parents and the children, but on the whole, things are looking pretty good. Now we go into heaven. What do we have in heaven? We have a family gathering. So, right. So this is the first important point, is that there is the banim. Right? That's the other reason that we have Banim in the first part of the story is to implicitly invite a contrast or a comparison between what's going up limata below and what's going up in heaven So, okay, someone say out, what's the comparison? Yeah, yeah, but what's new? What would you say about what, What's? Tell me what, when you compare them in your mind, what do you think? Ah, so that's just the fact that they're being compared. But I want you to go further and to say, does this look good? What? There's a lot of conversation. Good. So I don't remember, I don't know your name, but this is kind of, this fills out the dialogue for those of you who are missing that. But in terms of, is the picture here a harmonious picture of what's going on in heaven? No. No. Good. Finally, I get someone to say it. Good. This is not so harmonious. Someone say a little more
1: same quality that we noted earlier in Eo was being not commutative was that care uh-huh. towards his children, all of a sudden God says to we say, Well go do whatever you want to a
0: person that's a gem. Aha, uh-huh. good. Yeah. I would say I would say even stronger. I'm real I'm gonna say the real strong version of this is that it's not just the same quality. In fact the way in which Eo's household seems to be an orderly household the divine household in this paragraph does not seem to be an orderly household. It seems to be a disorderly household. Right? So it's not for nothing that... I see all the hands. The, Ryan right, just said something quasi-heretical, but it's okay. In a minute you'll get to say... Yeah? It
2: seems to
0: be more combative. It, combative. Great. Good. So combative. This is the classic Christian midrash on the Pasuk Vayi Vayavohu uh, B'nei Elohim Lit Yatseval donai is... Right, that this is the pasuk that talks about the revolt in heaven, right? So that's and I'm obviously that's not the shot of the pasuk, right? But it, it's not our midrash either. But there's something to it. There's something to the sense that there's a combative relationship, whereas everybody does the right thing on earth. In heaven, things are a mess, right? Yeah.
1: Like what whereas Eo is, is being careful to note every single mm-hmm. thing that's going on. Good. The only thing that God cares about is oh like he says besides you saw the whole world. There's one there's one detail that I want to talk to you about. There's only one thing that I care about. Like it feels like God is negligent of the entire rest of the world.
0: Good. Or another way you could say even stronger is when God is does pay attention to Eo, right? And when there's a the suggestion that there may be something like a sin in Eo's heart, right? Because Chatu Bil Vavam is essentially to sin in, the, in their heart, right? Is essentially what Satan is saying about Eo, what Eo was concerned about about his sons, right? So Eo's response was, "I'll bring korbanot, I'll bring sacrifices in a way of making up for it." Whereas God's response is, "Better test it, better test it," right? So even in the moment, as you're saying, there's a kind of exclusive focus on God's part. But even in the moment, when God does focus in. I don't think it plays out so well. Okay, good. Another another couple points to note. So one thing you may have noticed is we have our verb again. Beirachta, Yevarchka. Right? So the first time is Satan speaking to God, and he says, You've blessed, right? Eov, it's not for nothing that he's so pious. Yes. Are you assuming that
2: Satan
0: I was assuming Satan is one of the Benay Alam. You don't you don't think so? Say out
2: if it said
0: infiltrated. Uh huh, you've the Binayalah. Uhhuh. In this case we have someone had children, father
2: and son or whatever. Uh huh up there, which is
0: good. Good. So you're opening up the Manichean heresy again. Good. Very good. Very good. Right. I thought we were entirely between the Augustinian and the Gnostics, but also the Manichaeans have to have it. Very good. Yeah. Um, so we have, so with that revision, we have berachta and yivarcheka. And here I'll give you another fancy, for each section we're going to get another fancy term from rhetoric. Berachta yivarcheka, right? So berachta is the positive sense of blessing. Yivar is the negative sense of blessing, right? Give him a pach and we'll see. Then he's going to curse you. So we have, right, one of the things that a contronym allows you to do is entanaclasis. Raise your hand if you know that word. Entanaclasis. No one, Maya does. Um, Other than Maya, nobody knows. Entanaclasis is a pun played out over two words. Right? That is to say with a pun, you usually pack two meanings of a word into one instance of the word. Entanaclasis is using the same word twice with different meanings in close proximity, right? So here we see the, how the kind of contronym opens up into classis. Okay, and it sort of develops this theme of speech. All right, third section, third section, new reader. New reader, let's see. Um, uh, let's see, who wants to read? Um, can I ask you to read? Sure. <laughs> Great, either language.
2: <laughs>
0: By the way, just I want to pause right there right? Notice how we have good scenes This is a piece, just a minor point I want to make This is not a naive folk tale Right? The Hayom Vaihi Hayom, the Yom, the Yamim in the first section. There is careful chronological sequencing going on here. This isn't just Grimm's fairy tales. This is something a little more sophisticated. Keep
2: going. (laughs)  (…") Old Zem in the very Zemba by Omar, Esherokin, the problem of my Matik are Baton of he pulled the Pitara, by Imalta, Raka Nila Okay,
0: let's pause there. That's that's playing. Okay, so now we have the third sequence. um, And we have this kind of sequence of tragedies that befalls Iof. Um and I just want to here pick out some literary features that should you might have noticed as the, as we were reading out loud because they're very striking so one which is quite striking is the repeated phrases the only I alone was saved and then bav yomar, or ba Omar right while this one was speaking the next one came which is repeated three times the last time with a funny thing that we have odds, but okay, that's another question. Um, and it's this repeated structure that kind of sets up repetition. Notice that we have a nice three type, three-fold type 3 repetition. I mean, there are actually four, but the stock phrases come three times. So right, you have another trio. Um, so this whole narrative is kind of built on trios in a certain way. Um, and you also have these kind of messengers. And I would suggest that the messengers highlight this question that we've been thinking about a little bit of speech. These are people who have been saved just for the purpose of transmitting a messenger right Like to take a, give you a nice term from literary theory, Vladimir Prop who is a Russian formalist, right has a distinction between a character and an actant right A character is somebody who has leads a full life. Right? And then you sort of start thinking about how many children they have and what their psychology is like, you know, and like what they think about when they can't sleep at night, right? Whereas an act is somebody who performs a function. Right? It's not a character, it's just performs a function in the narrative. It's the same as like a wild animal or an earthquake or whatever you want. It's an event. And these people are events, right? And Rashi actually really accentuates this when he creatively says on each of these messengers <laughs> Right? In other words he just had a reshut just had permission to speak the word that, was, that they needed to say and that was it then they died Right? In other words they weren't, they're not there for the long term they are actants and whenever you see actants you should think well why do we have all these actants you got have one messenger Right. It, you know, I mean, one re- one thing is, it's sort of like in *The Merchant of Venice* when they come and tell them, "Oh, this ship that went down, this ship went down, this ship went down." It's rising action. But the other thing I want to suggest is that it heightens the question of speech. Right. It foregrounds the question of who's speaking. You know, Right. So there's this sense that speech is crucial to what's going on. And this, combined with the things that we've been tracking in terms of this verb, livarech emphasizes a question about speech and language and how you're going to respond to tragedy. The second thing I want to point out is the verbs. The verbs for all these bad actions. Va, what is it? Vatipol sheva or eish And I think there's a third. Can I see it? Right, that's going to come later, is that he's going to be by fall Arza, right? So we have these verbs of falling, right? And one thing about the verbs of falling is obviously they are in contrast to what? The verbs of ascension used to describe the olot, the offerings that go up, right? In the first section of the paragraph, in the, in the first paragraph. But they're also part of this kind of, they're part of this picture of destruction, and they're also part of, I would say, thematizing the gap between heaven and earth, Right? the gap between heaven and earth that is the kind of like setting of the first two paragraphs right? That what's coming down from heaven is not goodness is not orderly right? the sacrifices are going up and they're going up and they're beautiful and what's coming down is fire and uh, the Sabians whoever they are the Chaldeans at some point right? so there's bad is being returned for good okay Now we come to the crucial section, the crucial last couple of lines. Angie, would you read the crucial last couple of lines? Read them in English, because that way the Hebrew will be a surprise. From From then Job arose. All the messengers have come in, and what is he going to do in response?
1: Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And he said, I think
0: prostrated is probably better than worship. Keep going, yeah.
1: Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. (coughs) Blessed be the name of the Lord. For all this Job sinned not, nor ascribed ought unto me to God.
0: React first reactions to Eo, to his response to this. What do you make of Eo? He's a saint? He's a good Buddhist. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be a good Buddhist, but okay. Um, so he's a re- he seems like, it seems like total control. So this is really the place where people start saying the things that Alan Middleman says, right? They say, this is... Eov is the patient sufferer. He's completely at ease, right? Or not at ease, but he's completely accepting of what God is doing, right? So here's the trick. The trick is the line, right? mi I was born naked. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna die naked. Hashem God took. God gives and God took. shem mevorach. Right. What it was supposed to mean. What it really means is blessed be the name of God. Right. But what does it clearly also mean? given the context that we've been setting up, given the contronym in the Antenna classes, it also means, "cursed be the name of God! It's a little different. <laughs> right? It also means, there's, there's this sense that this utterance, Yei HaShem Mevorach, is ambiguous. It's quite radically ambiguous. It's open, it's porous to interpretation. Right in the same way, and you know now we're kind of getting back to the deep stuff that we started with the abstract stuff. In the same way that the question of Akadosh Baruch Hu Mi Adam, God saved us from their hands. When you're looking out at the when you're looking at the room full of people who are celebrating Shabbos right in Budapest, right in the same way that that statement has a irony to it, it cuts both ways. So too shema Hashem cuts both ways. Right? And this is brought out, I think, very nicely by the point there's a little bit of a mistranslation in Chafbet. Right? Becholzo lo chata', right? Same verb as we had for what he saw that the sons were possibly doing in their heart, right? Bilonatan tifla, l'elohim, right? Tifla. So the way we have it is nor ascribed, unseemly to God. I don't know exactly what that means, but it follows Rashi. Right in saying that Tifla means something that is tasteless, right? Bli, ta'am, without reason, unseemly. And Rashi says he doesn't say that God did something Tifla. Right? That's how we've translated it. But that, Ibn Ezra points out, and I think it's better, the Tifla, which by the way is clearly a pun on all those verbs of Na that have come before, fall, 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 and then this is his return. Really, the better way to translate it is, nor did he say anything unseemly with respect to God. That is to say, the unseemly is not about God. It's that Iov didn't say anything unseemly. right? He didn't say anything that anyone could say about it. That's a bad thing to say. Right? It's a kind of subtle difference between Rashi and Ibn Ezra, but I think it's quite important. And the reason it's quite important is because the whole amazing point of She HaShem Mevorach is that Eo manages to say the craziest thing, right, the thing that gets you the death penalty. right. He manages to effectively say this thing that is very, very harsh in a language that is completely acceptable and that is in fact pious language. Right, that's the remarkable thing that Eo does in this moment. Right, is that he encapsulates. Right, and whether it's Eo the person or the author of, say, for Eo, right, he manages to encapsulate and swallow the criticism, swallow the harshness within this pious speech. Okay, question or two, all the way in the back. Good. Very interesting. So this would be a project for you to go follow up. It takes, it'll take you, if it takes you, sorry? The the question was, maybe Eov is saying, if Eov were really saying cursed is God, he would say, Yishem Hashem Mikulal, or something like that. And and the, right, and the, the euphemisms are used only by the authors of Tanakh. They're not actually used by the characters. So it'll take you, as it took me, about an hour and a half to go through each of the instances of Livarech used as a curse in Tanakh. And what you'll discover is that sometimes it's used and sometimes it isn't used, right? Sometimes you have kilolat Hashem. You have the verb lekalel used all the time, right? Or the, the mikhalel, right? So, in other words, I don't think, I'm not saying it's impossible that sometimes it's the author in an extra diegetic outside of the frame of the narrative repairing the text to make it less problematic but I don't think it's the case that no character no person ever used euphemism I think people use euphemism all the time and so it remains plausible as a reading of the text that he is saying Mevorach and people can hear in Mevorach both alternatives but you could go look at a concordance if you don't believe me
1: Good.
0: Good. Oh no! Slow down! First of all, I'm not so sure that according to the rules of the narrative, God knows what's in Eo's heart right because that's the contest between satan and, and god right is to figure out what's in eo's heart if god knew right i mean in other words we from our perspective is yodea machshavot you know the yavin koyatzartietzarto right that god knows everything and understands every aspect of our inner mental life i'm not so sure the god of this narrative knows what's in eo's heart right that's the test that's what satan is telling him you don't really know what's in his heart That's the easy answer. That's the kind of textual answer to what you're saying. The bigger answer is to don't, is to, that I shouldn't, like, if I've been suggesting that Eov is cursing God, that's not what I intend to be suggesting, right? The point is not that Eov is cursing God. The point is that Eov is using language poetically. And that using language poetically allows you to access ironies, right? It allows you to access ambivalence, complexity, and to respond in a way that is simpler than the axioms of philosophy. Eov is definitely not cursing God, because the whole thing he's saying is Aram he, the whole point of what he's saying is God gave and God took. Right, this is not a blasphemous Eov. What it is is an Eov who is rich, right, who is rich with language and can respond in a way that is within the language game that he is playing that is within the poetic structure, but that nonetheless makes room for a response which on a pure philosophical account is, out, is outside of the picture. Right? So that's the kind of bigger answer to what you're saying, Right. is that this is not a bad EOV, this is just a more complicated EOV. Alright, one question and then I want to get to Chazal, just the last piece. Rabbi Silver, did you answer? Oh, you answered, okay. Your answer
2: will be answered
0: by... I'm very lucky. Right. Right, 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 The shot is clearly Yishem Okay. All right, so we're going to skip Tarek Bet because I massively overestimated how fast we'd be able to move through this. And I want to return to, in closing, the kind of question of how Chazal read Sefer Yob. This is necessarily going to be done in a totally momentary kind of fragmentary fashion, because you could spend, we could sit here all week and talk about the Gemara and Baba Bhattra, the Gemara and Tani, the Gemara and Sota. All right, so we're not going to do that, we're just going to see a moment. But what I want to suggest is that once we see this idea that poetic language, even in the prose, offers a kind of traditional response to suffering that is rich, right, that is richer than the philosophical alternatives, once we have that point in mind, the complexity of Chazal's response, the fact that you see arguments among the Amoraim of whether Eov was a good person, was a bad person, what to do with this pasuk, what to do with that pasuk, we shouldn't see that as a mess, as a degenerate version of the Kant versus Sadja game, right? We shouldn't see that as a kind of just a mishmash, we should see that as actually an authentic response to a text which is itself built on complexity and that we should see the idea that Chazal are trying to maintain that complexity and keep it going. Two small examples. One is just it's so beautiful I can't not bring it, which is that you'll notice it says at the end of Perak Aleph, the whole zod lochatai right? For all this, Yov didn't sin. And then at the end of Perak Bet, or midway through Perak Bet, after Satan has been allowed to touch the body of Yov directly and given him various heinous illnesses, we have Bechol Zot Lo right? Because his wife had said to him Barech Elohim right? Another use of Barech in the negative cursing sense Curse God and die And Eov doesn't refuse to do it So it says Bechol He did not sin with his lips right? So the Rava has a beautiful name Bechol Zot Lo Bisvatav Ama Rava Rava says about this with his lips he didn't sin. right in his heart he sinned. right It's kind of an amazing thing and he's playing off the fact on the obvious level he's playing off the gap between the first one, he did not sin and right with his lips. So it's, it's kind of a lovely Midrash on its own workings and Alan middleman, right? says this is a classic example of somebody in Chazal reading through the lens of the poetry and being critical of Eov and then trying to transplant it back into the prose. Right? The poetry is so modern Kantian. We don't like that. Right? Eov's a bad guy. And then you have to find ways, hooks in the prose, to make that work. Right? Because the prose seems not to fit that picture. I want to suggest that Ravva is reading Pshat. That Rav is saying something really significant because Rav is not just picking up on the gap between those two things; he's also picking up on chatu bnei, chatu right, bilvavam. Right? He's picking up on that language from the very beginning of the sin of the sons sinning in their hearts and cursing God. And I would say he's also picking up on the persistent play of that language of bracha. And he's, he's not. Judging, I mean, it comes across, right, in the genre of the Midrash, it comes across as an exceedingly harsh judgment on Eov. But what it also is, is it's a reading of who Eov is. It's a reading of the text as more complicated as having nuance to it. Okay, I have five more minutes. I'm going to give you one more example. This is an example from the poetry and then from the Mishnah. So it's amazing, Pasuk, Eov, Yod-Gimel. This is already, now we're in the, you know, Eov who is protesting. And he says... Hain yikdelani loach ayachel. Right. We'll just deal with the first half of the pasuk. The second half has a, some other problems, but just the first half of the pasuk. So behold, Hain yikdelani. He will slay me. God will slay me. Lo, pause. Ayachel. I will hope or I will wait. Right. So what's the lo? It's a kriktiv. Right. It could either be low with a. Or it could be low with an aleph which is the ketiv Right. I will not wait. I will not hope. If God will slay me, I'm done with him. That's it. That's the blasphemy of. Or it could be low with a vav That's the kray. That's the way you read it. I will wait for him. Yea, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. The King James, beautiful, right? Nice traditional eob in the King James, right? So and it all hinges on. The way you write that letter, right? And it's this beautiful moment where, if you actually were to imagine Eof speaking these words, "Hey, Delaney, Lo could be either way, right? It's this amazing thing where the pasuk contains both possibilities. So the Mishnah in Sota does, I think, something very lovely with it, um, which is this is a Mishnah which is uh, which is kind of. Litigating the question of Eo good guy or bad guy, and the language they use for it is whether Eo served from Yira. Let's do it on this side, right? That is to say, Eo served God because he feared and was afraid, but bottom line, he wasn't really, he wasn't really committed. Such that, right? When if there was a trial, he's ready to blaspheme, he's ready to give up God, right? And then to serve from Ahava. That's the paradigm of good service, right? So, what do we get? Boba yom Rabbi On that day, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hurkinus taught, Eov served the Holy Blessed One from love. As it is said, though he slay me, yet I will wait for him, lo with the vav. Right? The positive reading of Eov. But the problem is, the v- adayn hadavar shakul. Could go either way. The positive could be read other way. Lo ani o ani I will wait for him or I won't wait for him. So then he brings another pasuk. Scripture t- states, until I die, I will maintain my integrity. Right? And the point here is, will I maintain my integrity even when God kills me? Even when, if I'm only in it as a kind of servant meera, right, a servant who fears punishment, there's no further reason for me to serve God. right? So we bring another pasuk. This teaches that what he did was from love. Because even, when I, even until I die, I will maintain my integrity. Then we get the kicker. Rabbi Yeshua, Amma, Rabbi Yeshua, who will remove the dust from your eyes, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai? You had taught all your life that Job only served God from fear, as it says, a blameless and upright man that fears God and shuns evil. But Joshua, the student of your student, teaches that what he did was from love. Right? So so, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is two generations earlier than Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Yeshua ben Horkinus, says, that the Pasuk at the beginning, Yare Elohim, indicates that God was that Eov was really only fearful of God, he didn't truly love God. Right? And Rabbi Yeshua is saying, look, look at this amazing contradiction between what the master has taught and what the student has taught. So what I want to suggest in closing is that this is there's there's a beautiful structure to how this Mishnah works, right? And the the key to the beautiful structure is Rabbi Yeshua ben Borkinus brings a very successful proof text, right? Until I die, Tama mani, right? Lo asir, Tama Timi mani, I will remain pure. So why did he have to bring the first proof text at all, right? Why did he bring the one that didn't work? Why bring the one that is shakul, right? V'dayen hadavar shakul, right? Does it, does it make any sense? Bring the good proof text, don't bring the bad proof text. But, what's the second piece that's going on? This, midra, this Mishnah is itself literally shakul, right? Because at the end of the Mishnah, even though they say you have a conclusive proof, you have a stirrup between, you have a contradiction between Rabbi Yeshua ben Hirokinas on the one hand, and Yochanan ben Zakkai on the other hand. And they are the two opposing views. And the Mishnah is thus itself shakul, right? The literary structure of the Mishnah, I think the reason to bring the pasuk that is Equivalent that could say the two things is because that verse is in fact the summary of the Mishnah. That verse, more than either of the two decisionary, the deciding drashot, the ones that kind of push Eov into one place or another, is actually where the Mishnah wants you to end up. The adayin hadavar shakul is so, so to say, I believe, at the end of the Mishnah also, the matter is still in even balance. Um, And so I want to suggest that, you know, I want to encourage you all to go back and look at the, you know, mountains of other uh, midrash that exist on Sefer Yoh. This one I bring as just as a synecdoche, right, just as a small representative passage. Um, But I I do want to suggest that there is a kind of literary responsiveness in how Chazal are reading, and that they're doing so in order to pick out something that is actually really there in the text, which is the sense that this supposedly naive response of the prose as well as the supposedly blasphemous response of the poetry are both a little more complicated. And that one of the things that to kind of return to my, my central message is that it's possible to get trapped in a world of philosophy, it's possible to get trapped in a world of where there are stark choices, right, and where the way where the fundamental principles, the rational deliberation and removal of options, Um, and I want to suggest a better place as we think about theodicy is the place of poetry, the place where paradox is not just not a problem but is in fact constitutive, right, where shakul davar, right, is actually pretty meaningful and is really our response, right, that is to say that when bad things happen to good people, Right, The response is not to open the philosophy book. I mean obviously that's sort of pastoral psychology 101, but it's also actually a deep point right that people's responses to tragedy are themselves complex, layered, multivalent, ambivalent, right and that what our role the role of the tradition is maybe not only to provide the kind of philosophical schematic uh, kind of Frameworks, but also to provide the poetry that can capture the richness of those experiences. So, thank you. It's some call.